Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my amazing frat brother, Dr. Rashawn Ray, to the guest chair today as we talk about policing in America. Rashawn earned all of his degrees in sociology, a BA from the University of Memphis, and his MA and PhD from Indiana University. He has published over 50 books, articles, and book chapters, and nearly 20 op-eds. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Ray, welcome to Diversity Matters. Hey, Dr. Holmes, thank you so much for having me on the show. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Walls Torres Group is a boardroom and C-suite level consulting firm serving philanthropic clients, corporations, and academic institutions. The firm's focus areas are strategy, governance, and leadership, and they have a special interest in social enterprise and inclusive excellence. The firm is a certified minority and woman-owned business and is a strong advocate for education and youth philanthropy. Their featured nonprofit partner, Giving Cycle, is a leader in this area and has sparked the joy of generosity in over 1,500 young people. Diversity Matters listeners know that shortly after George Floyd's murder, I published an essay on police brutality and the less conspicuous ways that racism kills Black people, which this past year turned into a TEDx talk. And so considering the importance of this topic, I knew I wanted to do an episode on policing. And Brother Ray, you were the first person who came to my mind as a person who has done so much of this research. I've been impressed by your research in this area, your activism, the media content that you produce. And so I'm just looking forward to the wisdom that I know you're going to share with all of us today. So Rashawn, let's get started. All right, let's go. So before we dive deep into your research and the work that you do, I think it's really important to set the stage because, you know, a lot of people think about policing and they think about, you know, this idea of just protect and serve, but they don't really know, like, the history, the origins, the background. So can you give our listeners a quick overview of this origin of policing? Because I think it's really important for this conversation to ground it in some historical context. Yeah, I mean, look, the the origins of policing are vital to understand how we are where we are. And when we start talking about policing, it could be argued that law enforcement as a social institution in the United States is the one that has outlasted pretty much all others. It started before others and it has outlasted them. And it stayed in many ways true to form. And I think when people hear that, that's surprising. And so, of course, the the roots of law enforcement in the United States go back to slave patrols, groups of people who would go around and aim to round up Black people who were fleeing plantations, who were fleeing their enslavement. And it's important to note that while these individuals were overwhelmingly white men, there were definitely some Black men who were recruited to play a role in this process. Very few, but some nonetheless. I say that to say, because similar to now, there are some people who view individuals in law enforcement, they will see an incident and they see a Black person brutalizing a Black person and start to try to figure that out. Well, we've always had that particular social arrangement at play because there could be a set of social benefits for those Black people who do that. But overwhelmingly, it is white people 
who created the social institution, who maintains the social institution, and who enforces the social institution. And so when we think about those origins, that's really important. There's another really big origin here, and that deals with convict leasing, because of course we can't detach enslavement and law enforcement from convict leasing and the criminal justice system. Convict leasing was what happened after slavery formally ended. So we're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s. And convict leasing became prominent. It became known as slavery by another name, where Black people would be arrested and accosted for very minor type of infractions, such as jaywalking, looking at a Black person, talking back. Interestingly, some of the same sorts of things that we hear today. And so these individuals were put on a chain gang. Part of being on a chain gang meant that they worked on a railroad, they still worked on farms. So the same farms that Black people were free from were some of the same farms that individuals who were part of convict leasing were relegated to. How big was convict leasing? Well, let's go to the state of Alabama. In the state of Alabama, 75% of state revenue came from convict leasing, roughly the same percentage of state revenue that came from Black enslavement. So when we start to talk about the origins of law enforcement in terms of maintaining and enforcing the status quo, and the status quo has typically always been inequitable, and it's always been embedded in racism and keeping Black people in their place, it's important to have that history to know how we got here. And to also note that some of the same people who were police officers that during the Civil Rights Movement that were preventing MLK and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and the list could go on and on for striving towards justice, the freedom fighters that were black and white doing what they were doing. Those were some of the same cops the day after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, the day after the Voting Rights Act was passed, the day after the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed. So it's important to note that some of the same individuals were still there and rarely did the policies change that enforced us. And I think that speaks to how we see mass incarceration operating today. Uh, I think that's a great overview of the historical origins of policing in this country. And you brought up an additional point that is not central to this conversation, but I just wanted to highlight being a business group professor myself, this whole aspect of convict leasing, right? Even today, there are corporations that use prisoners as labor, forced labor. And so I think as an institution, we really, really do need to have these conversations much more more of us as citizens need to be aware of our constitution, which at this point allows this, right? Allows the fact that if you were incarcerated, then you necessarily don't have those rights anymore, that you can, in fact, in a sense, be enslaved. And we really need to use this type of language and terminology to talk about what is even going on in 2022. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. Look, I mean, all of these things have links and People like to detach them. The only people that can detach them are people who have oftentimes benefited from the different social arrangements over time. And I mean, when we start talking about enslavement, it has always been about relegating Black people and locking up Black people. The same thing with mass incarceration and the same thing with convict leasing in between. What's interesting is there are always people who talk about enslavement and say, oh, well, there were free Black people. You know what I find fascinating about the percentage of free Black people, which was roughly around 13%. Of course, it grew over time, ended up being 13%. So that means 87% of Black people were enslaved. And even if Black people were free, it really didn't mean they were free. I mean, and even today, it could be argued 
And I think it's very valid that black people still aren't fully liberated. And so in thinking about that 13%, 13%, that's roughly the percentage of black people today. So, so we got to think, and particularly when we talk about the entire population, just the number of black people that are incarcerated for nonviolent drug crimes, we continue to see the way that population control is utilized to stop us from having political power and truly being liberated. Right. A great point. And particularly the key aspect of in terms of liberation, right? True liberation. Because when we think about mass incarceration, you know, we know the numbers exploded, you know, post-civil rights, the movement area and dealing with Rich Nixon and, and the war on drugs and things like that. So I think that's a key, key aspect. And, you know, anybody who have followed your work and have seen your media segments, they immediately know the passion that you have for this work. But can you talk a little bit about how you develop this passion in this area of research? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I guess it depends on how far we want to go back. But say if we go back to undergrad, my days at the University of Memphis, I was a pre-med biology major. My mom is a nurse. My grandma is a nurse. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she's a nurse practitioner now. She was in nursing school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a physician. And I took a biology course and I just did not like it. And I was taking a sociology course and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Learning about people and this sort of stuff. I decided to switch my major. And during that time, part of what happened is I wasn't originally interested in studying race. I was interested in studying upper mobility. I was interested in studying family. You know, that's why I have a book called How Families Matter. I was interested in those particular topics. And two things happened. First, there was a, a dearth of a focus on the Black experience in the literature that did not represent me or the people that I knew that bothered me. The second thing that happened, though, with my work is particularly as I got into graduate school, my work essentially follows upperly mobile Black people throughout the life course. I studied them in education, in family, studied them in, in work settings. And when I got to neighborhood settings, I had a finding that Ben Crump calls the Ahmaud Arbery effect, because I've done a lot of work dealing with that case down in Georgia with Ahmaud Arbery being murdered. And what I found was that Black men, particularly middle-class Black men, are significantly less likely to be physically active in predominantly white spaces. And I thought, what the heck is going on there? Now, I mean, in short, I really just had to think about my time getting my PhD at Indiana University, and it all made sense, right? Like the movie Get Out, I'm not the kind of person where I'm like, oh, I feel seen, but in Get Out, I was like, oh yeah, I feel seen because that's the type of experiences that people were having. So that finding led me to say, okay, what I discovered is that Black men are being criminalized. That even when we don't have a weapon, our blackness becomes weaponized. And it led me to, okay, what then becomes the primary enforcer of that criminalization? And of course, it's law enforcement. The way that people call in surveillance and call in authority figures to come in and police black people. And that's what led me to doing work on policing for, you know, over the past decade is exploring the way those social interactions manifest in public space. That's an amazing story. I'm glad that you shared that with our listeners, but I, I want to peel back a little bit because I think it is important because far too often, a lot of people like to impose individual blame, right, to Black people for the situation that many of us find ourselves in, in terms of a society, right, if you think about population level metrics. But you mentioned the finding that you found about how upperly mobile Black people were less active, right? And these white spaces, which would be 
contrary to what you would expect, because we would expect this more positive correlation with how upwardly mobile you are and the sense of, you know, exercising and health and all of those type of things that we typically see with our white counterparts in terms of their health and mobility. But being in these spaces, right, and how, how we were perceived in these spaces and those outcomes that we get, that's huge. So can you talk about that a little bit more so people can understand the dynamics to take it from this individualized behaviors? And many times people talk about its pathologies, right, in our cultures and really shine a light on this entire basically ecosystem. Yeah, well, in the study that I did, it was a, a quantitative and qualitative study. So we did a survey, also did in-depth interviews with middle-class blacks and whites. So all of these individuals had at least a bachelor's degree. And what we found was that black men overall had the highest level of physical activity, higher than white men, higher than white women, higher than black women, had the highest. But when we broke it down by neighborhood, when I looked at neighborhood composition, individuals living in predominantly white neighborhoods, black men had the lowest. And so it led to, okay, why is this happening? Well, it's that criminalization effect that when black men are out, just for example, there was just a, a, a big incident that's about to blow up. Black man was, he's a pastor actually, watering his neighbor's trees, watering their flowers while they out of time, town. I mean, being a good Samaritan, doing what pastors do. Somebody called the police on this man, talking about he was looking suspicious. He was like, I got a water hose in my hand. You can imagine what happened. He got arrested. These are the type of incidents that happen. Part of what I found is that black men then engage in what we call a signaling process. That signaling process reduces the likelihood that they're going to be physically active. They try to signal their degrees. They wear an alumni t-shirt. They do things like wave at their neighbors. They smile. Look, if you're running there, you're running two, three miles. You're not trying to smile and wave at people, right? You're trying to get your exercise on, but they do those things. They run in well-lit areas. They do the sorts of things that try to reduce the threat, the perception of threat that it gives off. And I think the final point and related to policing, this is the stat that I use all the time about Black people's behavior with policing and authority figures. Black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites, 3.5 times more likely than whites, to be killed by police when they are not attacking and unarmed, when they are not attacking and when they are unarmed. Who says that? Police officers themselves. We are not talking about Black people who have done something wrong. We are not talking about Black people who are using physical force. We are not even talking about Black people that have a weapon. If we solve that stat, we will solve what is happening with policing. But see, in order to do that, we actually have to solve the cultural manifestations of racism and the cultural manifestations of Black threat. That becomes what's more difficult to do. Because again, even when Black people are unarmed, it's perceived that we have the physical abilities to cause harm to someone else's body. And that plays out in these incidents where police officers feel threatened, even though no one has done anything to them. Right. And so I want to talk about your family background a little bit, because you mentioned so many people that were, who were connected to you from the medical profession. And in fact, I just learned you and I kind of share a similar story. I was biology pre-med major as well. And, and I just did not like biology lab when I was in there. And so I switched. I love what I do now. But you have some family members who were, right, also police officers in the military. And one of the key things you said at the opening was about, you know, this, this idea of, okay, if you just have Black or Brown people there, 
then that's the answer, right? That's the panacea. And, and it's like, no, that's not the answer. That's not the panacea. Our research suggests that it helps because black and brown people tend to be more attentive to these things and do not commit these acts as much. But we do see some cases where they're also there. And so how does your family, the family members who are in law enforcement, you know, view your work and the findings and things that you have and, and how have they been, I would imagine, agents of change to help? you know, in these institutions? Well, I think they appreciate it, partly because, see, they're black and blue. And that adds a dynamic that people don't really talk about. What does it mean to be black police officers? My great uncle, Walter J. Gooch, was the first black chief of police of my hometown in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. My uncle was a cop. I have a cousin, his son, who's currently a cop. My grandfather was a drill sergeant in the Army. My mom got admitted to West Point in the late 1970s as a black woman. And then I have other relatives who have been in the military as well. So that's my legacy. That's what my family does. We serve. We either serve through the military, we serve through law enforcement, or we serve through healthcare. And so, so me getting the degrees I got, they were like, boy, why are you still in school? But you know, that, that's what my family does. Now, I'll say this. Interestingly, that biography didn't necessarily shape my research trajectory. I really followed the research, and that's just what it led me to. But my family experience definitely helped me to empathize with police officers. It allows me to be critical and also empathetic and understanding. And I think that is, it's a difficult space to be in, but I think I hit it. And I think it's because I have a unique background and got to the research in a unique way. So at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, where we do a lot of implicit bias trainings, where we have a virtual reality training program for law enforcement with Google that's just second to none. That biography helps me to connect with police officers, helps me to diffuse them when they've read something I've written or seen something that I've said, and they already come in amped up. And I'm able to instantly diffuse them in many ways, strategies I've learned over time. And so, you know, that perspective is important because police officers are not robots. Many of them do get in the profession to serve, but they are also socialized in a particular way. And many of them don't live in the neighborhoods they're policing. These are all structural problems that we can actually change. And that's what I try to highlight while also advocating that they should get paid more money. You know, there are problems that happen when they're underpaid because then they work a whole bunch of overtime. They don't make good decisions. Their racial biases go on steroids. But when you pay people more money, you can also credentialize the profession. So now all of a sudden you can start requiring people to have a certain level of education, which is going to raise the level of communication they use when they interact with people. So, I mean, that becomes the holistic way that I think about it. And I definitely think that my family helps me to think through some of these things. Excellent. Excellent. And so let's talk a little bit more about some of your research findings, right? So you've done research on the efficacy of body cameras, the determinants of police brutality, as well as, you know, police misconduct payouts, among others. So what has this body of work taught you and, and what has been the most surprising thing that you learned? through it? And what's been the most surprising I would say one thing that's been most surprising is actually how much bipartisan agreement there is on policing. And then coinciding with that, how difficult it is to actually change the structure. It is literally one of the things that speaks to the depths and the way that law enforcement is embedded within the sediment, literally in the land that we walk on that trying to change that structure is extremely, extremely difficult to do. But the bipartisan support is huge. For example, I wrote at Brookings, I co-edited a report with the American Enterprise Institute, 
which if anybody knows anything about them, oftentimes they're viewed as, as extremely conservative. But we agreed on 90 percent of what we put in that. And it was a report on criminal justice reform and policing. Also included the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian outlet. And that is because when researchers, regardless of their political orientation, their personal political orientation, when they follow the research, they come to a similar conclusion. So I would say that is what surprised me. There's overwhelming agreement on body-worn cameras, overwhelming agreement on implicit bias trainings, overwhelming agreement on the importance of police officers being held accountable for their behavior and the need to deal with the law enforcement bill of rights, which really gives police officers the ability to commit crimes in their personal lives or in their professional lives and not be held accountable for them like the general public. I mean, overwhelmingly, I talked to Democrats, Republicans. Actually, let me rephrase it another way. I talked to conservatives and liberals, and I think that's important to note that the political ideology spectrum is long and I actually think it's circular. And in that regard, it's not necessarily just linear. So if it's circular, there are places where Republicans or there are places where conservatives and liberals overlap. And I think policing is one of those spaces. Now, we do disagree on kind of some of the origins of criminality and criminal behavior, but don't necessarily disagree on what to do about it. Just since we disagree on how that came to be, we, kind of, we sort of disagree on how we think about some of the resources that should or the amount of resources that should be allocated but I would say that's the biggest thing that surprises me. There is bipartisan agreement. And despite that, it is really hard to change. And the reason why, your listeners are probably wondering why, the reason why is because the Fraternal Order of Police has law enforcement contracts on lockdown. You can't change them in the middle of what's going on. You have to change them when the contract is up. And that's one of the things that I do that a lot of people don't see is I work with local agencies and districts, school districts cities to change the FOP contracts when they are up to renegotiate for some of the things that they want. Amazing work that you are doing in this community. I want to talk a little bit about one of the essays that you wrote called Bad Apples Come from Rotten Trees and Policing. And so that was written shortly after the murder of George Floyd. And we know that period of time coincided with this whole racial reckoning in the United States and to some degree around the world, people have come back to, right? Because there's always cyclicals and it hasn't been the first one, won't be the last one when we talk about a racial reckoning. So can you elaborate for our listeners what you meant by that? Yeah. So the, the phrase bad apples come from rotten trees is something that I've coined to highlight that the behaviors that we see from officers on the street, like Derek Chauvin and others, that we can't simply view them in, in an isolated vacuum that Derek Chauvin came from somewhere. And if you have a rotten tree, typically that means it came from a rotten branch and that rotten branch came from a rotten tree. And unless we address the rotten tree, we will keep getting rotten apples that are poisoning us and killing us because we never address the tree. So the point of that analogy is to highlight structure, is to highlight the way that systemic racism operates. See, the apples are the individual racist or the officers that have been trained with racist policies that enact those policies who actually are not racist. And I see it all the time where an officer, I'm like, oh, like they got caught up in following their procedure that has an embedded level of bias and they made a really bad decision that harmed somebody and is going to impact their career. But the, the system is part of what is driving a lot of that. So I think when, when we talk about bad apples come from rotten trees, 
we have to focus on the rotten tree because if we don't, we're just going to keep getting rotten apples and blaming them without realizing that the tree, the roots, and when we start talking about the roots of law enforcement, that is the, the roots linked back to slave patrols. Those are the roots of law enforcement that we have never cut down. And that's the other thing. People know if you have a dead tree in your backyard, how you get rid of it? What you do? You can't just keep replanting it. It's going to come up and it's going to be messed up. You literally got to chop that joker down. And oftentimes it means replanting something. Now you can replant something there, but you have to do that. And I think that's part of the analogy. The other thing about writing that article after what happened to George Floyd is that was the year that I turned 40 and I was just reflecting on my own life, which I rarely incorporate into my own work. And I think this is one of the reasons why the, the, that particular article resonated. I realized I've been pulled over and stopped more times than my age. Again, I've, I just talked about my law enforcement background, my military background, my, my healthcare background of my family. Of course, you mentioned earlier that I have a PhD. I'm a professor. I can mention that I don't have a criminal record. Yet still, I've been pulled over and stopped or stand or stopped by the police over 40 times for all kinds of stuff. Being in the car, walking down the street, hanging out with my friends, studying for my comprehensive exam at Starbucks. I mean, you name it. Right. Rolling through a stop sign. Not having on my seatbelt, riding around campus, sitting in the parking lot of campus with my seatbelt off while I'm checking email on the phone, getting a ticket because I didn't have my seatbelt on while I'm in a parking spot. These are the kind of things that happen when you black and American. That's the reason why our social class and our education level don't matter as much as they should. And it's the reason why black people and white people too understand that our socioeconomic status and our social class is not simply tied to how much money we make. It's also tied to our social and cultural experience. And that's part of what law enforcement does is it mutes that. So my work started focusing on that tree to say, what can we do to deal with the roots of that tree that lead to the bad apples poisoning us? Right. So you brought up something earlier that raised my eyebrow, although I understood your logic. But I have to ask this question because you mentioned the system, right? in terms of funding. So you advocated for increased pay for police officers so that, you know, obviously they won't have to work overtime and make these bad decisions, which I totally understand that logic, but obviously defund the police, right? It's a prominent movement right now. So what's your take on that? And how do you, I imagine you probably do get some eyebrow raised when you say that, right? It's a solution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, uh, and again, I, I follow the research, right? So of course, defund the police. And I wrote an article about this it's been read over a million times through the Brooking site where I defined defund the police, talked about why it has marriage, why it's credible. So two points here. Defund the police it simply means reallocating funding. It does not mean to literally obliterate the system. You know, it does not mean to end law enforcement as we know. And there are definitely some people who think that we should abolish policing. But an overwhelming majority of Americans, including black Americans, do not think that's the way it should go. I tend to think, again, I don't know how much clearer I can be about chopping down the tree, okay, what I say. But with that being said, and doing a lot of policy work, working with policymakers and testifying, until we get to another revolution, I'm going to be in the trenches going into the lion's den, advocating for what my research suggests is correct. What, the way I think about it is reallocating funding, defund the police, has a lot of merits. This is why. First reason is because nine out of 10 calls for service have nothing to do with violence at all. Like nothing. Doesn't mean that it can't turn violent, but overwhelmingly, it's nothing violent at all. 
The second thing is that the homicide clearance rate is horrible. It's less than 40%. I mean, less than 50%. Only about 40% of homicides are solved in America. That's horrible. And in some cities, it's in the range between 40 to 60%. So we're really only talking about roughly half. That's horrible, right? I mean, it's horrible. The third thing is that response times to Black and Latino and low-income neighborhoods is simply pathetic. Like, they do not respond when Black people need them. They also do not respond when Black people are in need of help or when they're trying to report a crime. And then they want to talk about stop snitching. No, they don't trust you, right? Because they don't trust that you're going to protect them if they tell on somebody. That's what's going on in the hood, right? So defund the police has a lot of merits. So what does that mean? And how does that go with me thinking they need more pay and me also thinking they need housing subsidies? Well, let me tell you how. You can shift funding. So first off, I really don't think people realize how much money is spent on police. Let's go to Oakland. Let's go to Minneapolis. Let's go to Chicago. Roughly 40% of those cities' budgets are spent on police. 40%. That is outrageous. Imagine if it's 30%. Well, by, by definition, that's, that's defunding police. That's, that's reallocating funding. But that's where the reallocating funding comes from. Where does that 10% go? Now it goes to education infrastructure. It goes to work infrastructure. It goes to social services that are extremely underfunded. Goes to first responders, goes to teachers. So when I say defund the reallocating funding, I don't mean going down to nothing like that. That's just not feasible. But if you're spending, if a city spending 40% on law enforcement is way too high because those cities not only have some of the highest percentage, highest numbers of police killings, they also have some of the worst police outcomes. Instead, we could get closer to 25%. There are a lot of cities trying to be around there, trying to figure it out. DC, Atlanta, of course, they've had their problems. But think about the difference between 25 and 40%. Now, what's the second part of this? It's about shifting funding. What do I mean by that? Well, when I look at police budgets, they're spending money in places that the public does not want. There's not a lot of money spent on training. So when, you hear, when, when we hear law enforcement say we need more training, a lot of people are probably like, oh, my gosh, you're being a dead horse. I mean, it's just racism. Why do you keep talking about training? Well, you know what? When you look at the budget, training actually doesn't get a lot. So from the law enforcement perspective, it's not like they do what I do. They're not a policy analyst. So their reaction is, oh, if we have more money for training, we can train officers better. I do think some of that's true. Not completely, because you need a qualitatively different type of training. You can't simply throw money at the same type of training. But the other thing you can do is you can look at all the money being spent, say, on field patrol, which mimics the slave patrol model where you have a whole bunch of cops on the street. They're not solving a whole bunch of stuff. They're dealing with very basic things, filling out a whole bunch of paperwork, pulling a person over for going 54 and 45. Not saying you should have been going nine miles over, but come on, man. Like it's other things going on. And then that allows them to have time, law enforcement have more time to solve the violent crime that we want to see solved. Because not only is homicide horrible, sexual assaults are horrible, robberies are horrible. They do not solve those, solve those crimes. The places that solve most of those crimes actually get less of the city's budget. So we have a model. So my perspective is we reallocate funding and we shift funding. Defund the police definitely have merits, but it's different from abolish the police. Now, I'll also say this. There are some, some police departments that I completely agree they need to be abolished. I actually think they just shouldn't be around. I mean, they're horrible. Like we could look at some places in New Jersey and California where they have literally abolished those police departments. Some of them have been swallowed up by the county. Others, they've rebuilt. That's just like knocking down a tree and planting something new where the community is involved. 
I think all of those matter. When we take an evidence-based market-driven approach, we get to the best solution for a city or a police department and then help them to move forward in a way that is healthy and beneficial for everyone. Excellent. And again, nothing's perfect, but you mentioned New Jersey. So I just want to shout out the former mayor, friend of mine, Dana Red, who has done a lot of that work with reallocating funds and restructuring the police department in the city of Camden, New Jersey has experienced a number of positive benefits as a result of having a great leader making those really tough decisions to follow the evidence, like to follow the research. What's the research say what would be the best outcome? Uh, so I appreciate you elaborating on that. So, you know, same piece, you know, you mentioned Will Smith's quote, right, about racism is not getting worse, it's just getting filmed. So do you still feel this way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, one thing that Body Worn Cameras did, and that was a response to Body Worn Cameras, where to highlight another example of bipartisan support, we did a study about body worn cameras, and we found that overwhelmingly, regardless of race and political ideology, people supported body worn cameras. That's the reason why it passed. It was easy to put in place. Now, we can talk about one of the reasons why they're not implemented as well as they should. Not only is that about officers turning their cameras on and off, I actually think that's a smaller part than people think, even though it becomes a big deal in some of these incidents. It's really that officers are giving mixed signals about when they should leave them on and when they should turn them off. Because the software, the cloud storage, costs so much money. So I want people to think about their phones, think about your ring door cam, and how much money those things cost to store the videos. Now imagine having a thousand police officers running their cameras 24-7. I mean, like, what are you talking about? How much storage do we need, right? The equipment isn't expensive. So, and we also know, think about if we didn't have the video for George Floyd. Think about if we didn't have the video for Eric Garner. Think about if we didn't have a video for Tamir Rice. Think about if we didn't have the video evidence when Walter Scott was killed, right? I mean, if we didn't have the evidence there with former officer Slager, who just pulled out his gun and shot Walter Scott in his back and then tried to say he was trying to do that. And what recorded pretty much all those incidents? Somebody's mobile phone. So this is the reason why in certain states like Arizona, they're trying to prevent people from recording the police because they know that their surveillance matters. Now I'll say this, the surveillance has definitely mattered in changing public opinion, has not necessarily shifted the rate at which law enforcement is convicted. I'll say that. Like, like for every Derek Chauvin incident with George Floyd, you have a Rashard Brooks, where originally they were fired. Just we know recently those officers will not be convicted, won't necessarily face charges for that particular incident. So we see how these things play out. And it's also important to note that over 90 percent of the time when a person is killed by police, Police are never charged. And then over 90% of the time, if an officer is charged of that 10%, they are not convicted. And how many people are we talking about? Well, in the United States, over 1,000 people are killed by police every single year. That is a person every eight hours. Every day, at least three people are killed by the police. And it has not stopped during the pandemic. So yeah, it's getting filmed because I think a lot of people don't really recognize the gravity and the extent to which police violence happens. Those are just killings. We're not talking about getting beat. We're not talking about getting harassed. We're not talking about getting sent to the hospital. We're not talking about getting shot. We're talking about getting killed. Every day, three people are killed by the police. Then think about what I call trickle-down policing. All those other incidents that's part of the rotten tree that harms us. You give us a lot to think about. And 
you know, as we come to a close, one of the many, many things that I love about you is that you are truly a scholar activist. You do the work, the difficult work in the scholarship and pushing our knowledge forward, but you also walk the walk. You have worked with a number of different institutions, including police departments, the military, Homeland Security. Based on all of the work that you've done, first of all, just kind of go a bit more in detail of some of the work that you have done with them, but also tell us what do we need to happen to improve these institutions? So it's a, it's a few primary things that I do. First, I have an implicit bias training program approved by the Maryland State Police Training Commission. Maryland is one of those states similar to people who are like, you know, you can think about how people get a license. It allows us to do implicit bias trainings in, in a lot of states pretty much across the country. The second thing is I mentioned at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, we also have a virtual reality training program where we fully immerse police officers in the virtual worlds and help them with communication, de-escalation, and reducing racial bias. Work with a lot of police departments, go to them, they come to us. And then the third thing, I take that research, of course, write it up, create not only journal articles and academic publications, but policy reports that then takes me to Capitol Hill quite a bit and into state legislatures to help to change laws to make things more equitable. You know, I would say that what primarily needs to improve, what my research has led me to, is that we have to follow the money. And I know we talked about defunding the police a little while ago, but the biggest thing we need to do is we need to address where the money comes from as it relates to civilian payouts for police misconduct. If we look at the top 50 largest cities in the U.S. from 2015 to 2019, over $2 billion with a B was spent in payouts for police misconduct. $2 billion. What is so disheartening about that number and shocking is that that number, I mean, it just pales in comparison to the amount of money that was spent on payouts in the non-major cities, because there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. We have to restructure that. The other thing that a lot of people don't know, that money comes from taxpayer money. So all your listeners, that comes out of their pocket. So for Black people, we are paying our taxes to then be paid back for our own police brutality. I mean, it is tragic. Instead, what we need are insurance models. Insurances for police departments, insurance for individual officers. The state of Colorado and the city of Denver are moving in that direction. There are other jurisdictions that I'm speaking with and interacting with that are coming up with a model for this. And I think this will shift a lot because it will shift accountability. See, think about it. Police officers are rarely convicted and they are also rarely held accountable financially. And nothing changes. And this is the way law enforcement has always been. If we go back to slave patrols, what was that about? That was about money. That was about the value in the black body. Same way today, that the police payout is about the value of the black body. And I applaud people like Crump for getting this money in the millions and millions of dollars. At the same time, part of the reason why he's doing that, and we talk about this, is because once you do that, people will start saying, where's this money coming from? Is there a better model? You create an insurance model. In short, people know how insurance works. You have enough car accidents, guess what? They're going to drop you. So we're going to have police departments and individual officers getting dropped. And guess what? Now that sets the pathway for abolishing a police department because they've had so many misconduct claims like a Camden 
where the city simply cannot function. And this has happened in small places around the country where police departments have bankrupted cities. There are places where every year their people's property taxes go up because of a police brutality claim. There are other places where school districts have closed because of police brutality claims. And so, look, I think that is what we ultimately have to do. We got to follow the money and we have to deal with those civilian payouts for police misconduct. I think that's uh, some great tips, insights to leave us with. You want to give us some peeks into some projects that you have coming up at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, on this front, you know, I'm writing a book that is uh, long overdue. <laughs> that probably no surprise. Bad apples come from rotten trees over the past few years that's coming from the book. So the plan is to finish that up and get it out. So I would say related to policing, that is uh, one of the biggest things. And I'm working with government agencies, the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Justice to further cement the virtual reality program into law enforcement training. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brother Ray, for joining me in the guest chair today to talk about this very, very heavy, yet immensely important topic. Don't be surprised if I ask you back to talk about some of the other amazing work that you're doing. So, for example, I'll just give, you know, reparations. Like, that's something that you, you've done some work, and it's a topic that I definitely want, hopefully maybe season four or something, to, to talk about. But in the meantime, I wish you much, much continued success and all that you're doing. And to all my listeners, make sure you go to RashawnRay.com to find out about his latest work, as well as follow him on all of the socials. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable rating and review so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you, so we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsors, The Walls, Torres Group, and Giving Cycle. Please check out the great work they do by visiting their websites at www.wallstorresgroup.com and www.givingcycle.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.